Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The era we know as the Renaissance was a period in European history marked by a revival in the classical age of Greek culture and learning. Visual art flourished during the Renaissance in Italy, mention the name Michelangelo, and images of some of the most magnificent artworks ever created come to mind. His statue of David in the city of Florence, and frescoes painted for the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Later this hour, we'll hear about the Sistine Chapel in Atlanta by way of an up-close exhibition at the Westside Cultural Arts Center. In terms of cultural representation, the Renaissance still came up way short, as this scholar explains. Ayanna Thompson is a Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University and Director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. She's also a Shakespeare Scholar-in-Residence at the Public Theater in New York. Dr. Thompson's expertise in Shakespeare and Renaissance literature informs her new book, Blackface, she joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's an honor to be here with you. Blackface is part of Object Lessons from Bloomsbury Press, a series about the hidden lives of ordinary things, as they describe it. It's very sad to think that the practice of blackface is an ordinary thing. Would you explain the horror that you experienced attending your son's third grade poster presentation? Yes. So uh, sadly, this wasn't that long ago. It was in 2012. And um, my son was attending a private school that billed itself as being academically rigorous. And they had to do a year-long research project on 
their hero, kind of the person they think made the most difference in the world. And they had to then perform as their hero at the final poster presentation. My son was William Shakespeare, <laughs> influenced Big by- surprise. Exactly, influenced by his household. Um, and my little brown son, of course, never considered putting on makeup to be William Shakespeare. And I assumed makeup wasn't part of any of the ideas or thoughts, but there were three children in his class in 2012 who were in blackface and their heroes were Martin Luther King Jr., Serena Williams, and Arthur Ashe. But these little eight-year-olds were in full black makeup to inhabit and embody their heroes. And while I tried to mask my dismay as I talked to them about their heroes, and it was clear that they were, you know, really full of respect and reverence for these figures, when I approached the principal about why this happened and where their conversations about makeup and what's going on and it doesn't this veer dangerously close to blackface, he didn't understand what I was saying. And he said, what do you mean? What is blackface? And I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> this is our history, our shared American history. It shouldn't be that I need to educate the principal of a private school about American history. But then I realized, right, this is a history that we like to pretend exists only in the past, that it's over and done with, and we don't need to think about it anymore. But as I discovered, there were so many performances on American television in the 21st century that employed blackface from episodes of Saturday Night Live to Jimmy Kimmel's The Man Show, Sarah Silverman's show, 30 Rock, four different episodes of 30 Rock. And of course, Fred Armisen in blackface to be President Barack Obama for five years from 2011 to 2016. So there was so much in the current moment that was showing us blackface that I felt like I had to write a book that said, it's not just in the past, it's happening now. We need to understand the long arc of how this came to be. And we need to find a way for us to end it today, collectively. Oh, well, that arc is extremely long as you write. I was amazed to learn about the medieval roots of blackface and you said some 40 plays during Shakespeare's time involved blackface? Yeah, so medieval theater was primarily religious-based. So these were biblical stories that they would make come to life in their local towns in England. And many of the religious plays depict the fall of angels. And when they fell and were damned, they would appear in blackface. And we think they use different types of racial prosthetics from oils like bitumen to, you know, kind of more generally makeup things to masks and visors, wigs, gloves, etc. So in that religious context, some people have argued, well, that's symbolic or metaphoric and not racialized. But it becomes clear by the time that Shakespeare's writing plays that those kind of symbolic blacknesses 
then transferred into characters who were supposed to be from Africa and Turkey and Asia, etc. And the calculations by other scholars, Matthew Chapman and Jonathan Burton individually, they guessed that there's somewhere between 50 and 75 characters of color on the Renaissance stage. So you think in their tiring houses, which is like their costume rooms, they not only had a variety of costumes, but also a variety of racial prosthetics from fake noses, wigs, vitamins, oils, et cetera. So this is very popular, yeah. This scholarship that you have done just makes me want to go back and read more about this. What is blackface minstrelsy? Right. So if we think about the medieval and Renaissance stagings that I talked about, that's generally called blackface. So it's the application of black makeup or prosthetics to appear as another race. Blackface minstrelsy is usually separated out as a specific performance tradition and genre that started in the 19th century in America we think around 1830, that is a performance mode that is comical in nature and is used to deride and um, make fun of enslaved people and recently freed people. And T.D. Rice is often credited as the father of blackface minstrelsy because he said that he was watching an enslaved man in a barn and he was kind of hobbled on his legs, but was singing a song and, and sort of dancing. And Rice said that he wanted to imitate that on stage for comical purposes and made up a song and a dance that became kind of the black blackface minstrelsy tradition that started out as like one man shows that were performed in between other performances to becoming full minstrel troops that would give you a, a whole performance with different skits. And this is where we get like the Mammy character and the Dandy character, the Sambo character. All of those came out of this minstrelsy performance tradition. Now, a lot of scholars of minstrelsy try and separate it out from this earlier performance history that we call blackface. Uh, what I try and do is say that they're actually part of a continuum. Mm -hmm. And one of the most popular shows in 19th century America was Othello, which of course was performed by white actors in blackface from Shakespeare's time on to this moment in the 19th century. And Rice himself even created a minstrel performance of Othello. So you see that they really are related in the sense that black characters on stage in the English speaking world were from the beginning white performances in black makeup. So a black character was from the beginning of you know, English performance history, a white endeavor. It's disturbing to read about Charles Matthews. Who was he and why was he destructive? Yeah, Charles Matthews was this very famous English performer. And he created a kind of performance genre of a one-man show that was called At Home Sketches. And really, they showed the kind of versatility of the actor 
by his rapid switchings between different characters with different accents and sometimes quick costume changes. So he was famous for doing like a Parisian urbanite and then a Cockney, you know, street worker and then, uh, you know, a country uh, Scottish lass, all in rapid succession. And these were really, really popular in the early 19th century in England. And he came to the U.S. in 1823, I believe, at the invitation of a theater impresario in New York named Stephen Price. And he came specifically because he thought he could get new material for these at-home sketches. But when he got to the U.S., he was quite dismayed by what he referred to as the sameness of walk and talk and dress. Like he was hoping his virtuosity is displayed by his ability to kind of make these rapid switches between characters. But the Americans, he thought, all looked and talked and sounded the same (laughs) until he said he met what, and this is his words from letters that he wrote to his friends, Black Gentry. And then his new show that debuted in 1824, so this is six years before the first full-fledged minstrel show by T.D. Rice. So 1824, he debuts this play called A Trip to America, in which he ruthlessly mocks Black Americans. And one of the things that he mocks in particular is what he calls, and I, I won't use the word, but the N-word theater. And we know that there was a Black theater in New York that was started by William Brown that was called the African Theater. And these Black actors put on plays by Shakespeare and contemporary plays, but they were particularly invested in Richard III, which was the most popular Shakespeare play at the time. But in Matthew's performance of this, he says he goes to their theater and sees a production of Hamlet in which the main actor mispronounces all the words and gets all the dialogue wrong. What's interesting, of course, is that this is a complete fiction because the theater company didn't do Hamlet. Mm -hmm. And so he just starts kind of creating this performance mode that derides Black Americans for being uneducated and also striving for something beyond their means aspiring to put on Shakespeare, but in this bad way. And that gets folded into the minstrelsy performance tradition that later we see T.D. Rice and others exploding. So although many people like to think of blackface minstrelsy as an American and uniquely American phenomenon, we actually see that there are many English actors and entertainers who had a hand in its birth as well. Because they thought the white people they saw in America were all boring. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Would you tell us about James Hewlett? This was fascinating. Yes. James Hewlett is one of my favorite historical figures. He was one of the leading actors in the uh, African theater in New York. We think, just like William Brown, the founder of this theater, we think that Hewlett was a steward on transatlantic ships. So both Brown and Hewlett traveled abroad. They both have experiences in England, even though they're, you know, Black Americans. But he became one of the leading actors in the African theater. We know that he was a skilled dancer and actor, 
but he also has like an unbelievably tragic life. He ends up destitute and he is mocked mercilessly in the New York, white New York papers, again, for this like, you know, aspiring to do something that they assume is beyond his talent or ability. But he, he really set the stage for who was to become the first great Black American actor, who is Ira Aldridge, who I assume some of your listeners will know about, but he was another Black American. He also got his start at the African theater alongside James Hewlett, but he rose to fame in Eastern Europe. He moved to England first in the 1820s and then stayed and didn't kind of reach the levels of fame he he thought he'd get in London, but he got all these invitations to tour around Eastern Europe. And he was a superstar in Russia and Poland and other places. And we have accounts of him with like famous dukes and other literary figures and artistic figures. Sadly, he died in 1863, I believe. I might be getting the year wrong. But he was never able to return to the U.S., but that was his goal. Did he perform in Slavic languages? He performed in English, and the rest of his cast, he would pick local actors, and they would perform in their whatever language it was, whether it was Polish or Russian or other languages. But he also performed in whiteface when he performed as Macbeth and King Lear and other major parts in Shakespeare. So he was pretty, pretty amazing. But again, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, there are amazing biographies by him. And there's also a great book by Shane White called uh, Stories of New York that kind of tells the James Hewlett story. And then there's all amazing scholarship around Ira Aldridge. But I think Aldridge is important because even though he was performing lots of Shakespeare, Othello, Richard III, King Lear, Macbeth, like in the most famous ones in the 19th century. And he was performing the white characters in whiteface. Most of the reviews talk about him as being revelatory in Othello and not necessarily praising his whiteface performances. Mm -hmm. And I think this shows the kind of power imbalance that existed back then and still exists today and explains why my brown child did not white up to be William Shakespeare, whereas his white classmates blacked up to be Martin Luther King Jr. and Serena Williams. That there's not the assumption that people of color are entitled to performing whiteness. Professor Ayanna Thompson, discussing her new book, Blackface. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with author Ayanna Thompson. Her new book, Blackface, looks at centuries-old history and the painful, lasting effects today. Here, Professor Thompson talks about the presence of blackface in film and TV. Because black characters have from the start been white property. Black characters in performance have been white property. And that means literally from the first black characters ever created in English, they were to be performed by white actors in black makeup. That legacy makes it difficult now for black characters to even own a performance mode that is authentic to themselves and a full and robust complex portrait of black humanity. And at the same time, we still have this, I've taken to call it like zombie performance mode. Like you think that blackface has been dead at various different times over these 400 years, right? Like, okay, it died after the civil war and after Jim reconstruction, like let's have blackface end then. But no, it comes back like a zombie at another time and it keeps coming back. It came back hugely in the 1980s In fact, many of the politicians now who have been caught with blackface performances in their past, that those performances were in the 1980s. And then it had a huge resurgence in the 21st century around the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States. So there's this this sense that like it won't die. It just keeps coming back. And for me, I want want us all to linger on that and to, to think about like, is it actually gonna die now. We've had Tina Fey apologize for the four episodes of 30 Rock that had blackface. She's removed them from all the streaming platforms that host 30 Rock. And she said explicitly, I don't want any child who's looking for comedy to come across this harmful performance tradition and I apologize. So we have that. But then we also have Disney who has said, actually, we're going to keep all of our content and we're going to give you a warning at the beginning saying some of the content is harmful. Some of this is from our past when we should have known better. And we hope that this inspires a dialogue about how we want to proceed in the future. And I think what I'm hoping is that Blackface has my little book and it is it's little and accessible. <laughs> it's not like an academic book. It is meant for a general readership. I hope my little book sets the stage for the debate between those two stances. Do we remove this? Do we erase this history? Or do we just warn people, keep it, and then hope that a dialogue ensues? Mm. And I think that's where we are. are, We're trying to decide which place we are, what we want to do, and how that informs where we go in the future. You mentioned some of the politicians and actors, late night comedians. Early in the book, in chapter two, you write about contemporary public figures who have appeared in blackface and 
Many of the white people say they were unaware that this was offensive. Why is ignorance not innocence? Well, (laughs) I think, so for example, Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia, who is still the governor of Virginia right now, and Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, who is still the prime minister of Canada now, both of them within the span of a month had their past performances in blackface revealed. Northam, his yearbook photo was exposed while he said, I don't think that was actually me in the yearbook. The reason I can say that is because I do remember performing as Michael Jackson in a talent show in blackface and I won the talent show. For, uh, for Justin Trudeau, it appears that he's done it at least three times. Uh, one singing the Harry Belafonte song, Deo, the banana boat song. Um, another time appearing as Aladdin and the third time just randomly in, a, in blackface in, a, in an Afro. So, but both of them said, I didn't know how harmful it was. Northam went on to say, I just didn't know about this history. I loved Michael Jackson. I wanted to showcase the fact that I had learned to do the moonwalk and that that took a lot of time and energy. And I didn't realize that by applying shoe polish, he specifically said he used shoe polish, that applying shoe polish would have been offensive. He goes, I know now, but really my intentions were pure. So the the logic and rhetoric behind these stances are, I was innocent. I didn't know the history. And so I can't quite be culpable. I will say Justin Trudeau walked that language back in his longer explanation saying, I have since realized that I should have known and that that was a kind of privilege, a white privilege stance that I took. And I promise to, to, you know, to uh, be an ally going forward. And I think that both of them still rely on this kind of innocence. And there is not the equivalent for black and brown people. We don't have the presumption of innocence for our actions. Look at all of the unarmed black and brown people who have been killed by police officers in just the past five years. That's just not part of our cultural dialogue that we can rely on innocence to get us out of things that we've done wrong, or at least our intentions. And that's something that's sort of built into the repetition of blackface as a performance mode, that white people constantly feel that they can say, but my intentions were pure. I wanted to celebrate Harry Belafonte. I wanted to celebrate Michael Jackson. I wanted to celebrate, in another case, um, Diana Ross, when Luann DeLesseps, one of the house famous housewives, dressed up as Diana Ross in blackface for Halloween. I wanted to celebrate Barack Obama, if you're Fred Armisen, on Saturday Night Live for five years performing as <laughs> Barack Obama in blackface. Like, again, like, I think that assumption of, like, I will celebrate by donning blackface that relies on this, like my intentions must be good. And so therefore it's not harmful. And I just want to say they're all related. The medieval performance traditions, the Renaissance performance traditions, the 19th century minstrelsy traditions, all of that is related to what happens in the 21st century. I'm wondering if Justin Trudeau felt that there was something he admired to the point of 
envy that he repeated this. I mean, I, it, it's incomprehensible to me that one wouldn't understand the offensiveness of putting on black makeup. I mean, what do you say to people who maintain that this is out of admiration? Well, so here's another example. The Academy Awards in 2012, right? Not 1912, 2012. Billy Crystal was the host of the Academy Awards that year. And he did a little skit at the beginning of the awards where he was kind of introducing all the films that were up for best picture. And in one of the, when he's talking about the Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris, he appears in a kind of cafe scene in blackface to be Sammy Davis Jr. Oh dear. Was there no one in the room at the Academy Awards to say, I actually think this is not a good idea. It's 2012, this doesn't seem to be acceptable. But I think that was a moment when Barack Obama was president and people had an immense desire to be post-race. And that that meant that if we're done with race, we don't have to talk about it, we're all equal because we elected a black president, then all of these performance traditions, comedic performance traditions that had been ostensibly taboo are available again. And I think that's when you see like Ben Stiller's film Tropic Thunder that has Robert Downey Jr. in blackface for the entire film. Robert Downey Jr. was nominated for an Academy Award in 2008 for a blackface performance. Like this is where, you know, you think, what? Yeah. So yeah, I think I think there is a real desire to say we're not racist, I'm not racist and so that means I'm allowed to do this. And just to be fair, when you're a student of comedy, the way that Billy Crystal is and Ben Stiller is and Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel and Sarah Silverman and Tina Fey and others, all these people who have done blackface routines. When you're a, a student of comedy, That is one of the taboos that you want to explore because comedy is always about pushing the edges. But again, like you, I feel like someone needs to say, that's not your joke to tell. And in the case of Sarah Silverman, what you wrote went beyond provocative. It was disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) Again, like, I think, like, is there no one to tell them at the moment, like, don't do this? Or even, like, in the last chapter, I talk about a lot of fashion. Like, there is a Gucci turtleneck that rolled up that you put it over your mouth and had a blackface mouth on it. So, like, there's no one in the room to be like, "Uh, I'm sorry, this is probably going too far. But what we hear actually from the Fashion Institute of Technology example that I give where there's a student fashion show where the models are made to wear big fake lips and big fake ears, again, evoking these weird blackface imagery. There were, the, what, the models were like, uh, I'm uncomfortable with this and actually I'm, I really don't want to wear this. And they were told, you will wear it. It doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable. It's only two minutes of your life and this is fashion. So that's what I think is disturbing. Even when we have these examples of people speaking up, it still happens. (laughs) You devote two chapters to the legacy of blackface. 
what's been the encompassing impact for everyone? Well, I mean, I think for white actors, there is, again, like, I feel like whether consciously or unconsciously, it must be unconsciously, there is an assumption that Black characters in performance are something that they are entitled to inhabit. Like that just happens over and over and over again. But for Black actors, I think the legacy is is probably more harmful because they're trapped in these performance modes where they're either kind of replicating uh, Blackface portrayals of Blackness or they're in this other performance mode that again was established in the early modern period in Shakespeare's time about exhibiting their bodies and their trauma, or they're in these performance modes where they're constantly worried about if it's possible to perform black identity authentically. So like, I don't think white actors worry about whether or not they're performing whiteness authentically. But we see that over and over and over again in contemporary Black performances. That's a weird, horrible legacy to be trapped in. The final chapter of your book is tragic. It's titled, I Can't Breathe. Would you talk about the conclusion? Yeah, so... You know, I've been thinking about the kind of long history of blackface and the contemporary implications of blackface for a long time. But I knew that I wanted to write this book quite quickly, right? So like I've had, you know, 10 years to research this, but then I wanted to write it quite quickly. And in the middle of writing the book, George Floyd was murdered in the most, you know, horrific, inhumane way we can imagine where people were saying, you're killing him, get off his neck and just check his pulse. Mm. And Derek Chauvin refused to do either. So while I'm writing Blackface, this happens. And I felt like there was a dirty, vile thread that went from these medieval and Renaissance performances of Blackface through the 19th century, straight around George Floyd's neck and all of our necks in some ways. That this this history, which we have a lot of cultural amnesia around, continues to kill us and kills Black people individually, but I think in some ways kills us collectively. And that's that's where I I end up. And it's it's a it was hard. I mean, I'm pretty good as a scholar who works on race at compartmentalizing my research from my life. But I felt like everything, those little boxes just could not be kept separate and that everything flooded together. And I think certainly that came back to us during the reports of the trial of Derek Chauvin recently. I can't breathe. And who could listen? I mean, I, I... You wrote that this book is a defiant and material act of remembering our collective American history. Yeah, I mean, I think for a while now, blackface and the history of blackface minstrelsy has been treated as a black topic, 
that like, we need to know it, we need to research it, we need to be in some ways responsible for this. And I wanted this book to be like, no, 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 no. Just like the principal in my son's school, this is our history. I don't need to know this more than you do. You need to know it as much as I do. And so the book for me is like this little book that you can give to your neighbor, you can give to your child's teacher, you can give to your students to say, this is what it means. And these are the implications. And where do you want to go? Where do we want to go in the next 50 years? Do you have any hope that the topic of blackface and the surrounding insult could be incorporated into education, young people's education. I remember it was only a couple of years ago that I learned about the Tulsa race massacre Mm -hmm. from an Alvin Ailey dance choreographer. And at the time saying to him, why wasn't this in my middle school history book? Just uh, as, at least when I was growing up, there was nothing about Japanese internment camps in American <laughs> yeah. history in high school. <laughs> oh, and, and let's, let's remember the thing that really no one remembers, that those internment camps were on Navajo reservations. Oh. They were on native lands. <laughs> you know, talk about forgotten history. But Lois, I think you're hitting on a really important point that we probably have to rethink our relationship with American history. I would love for us to have a reckoning about how we teach our past with regards to race and power and structural racism. But I actually don't think that's enough. I think we have to have new popular entertainments that include some of this history as well. So like thinking about the the Tulsa massacre, I do think that there were a couple of of good television shows recently that folded that in that sent young people onto their iPhones to do Google searches about what is this? Is this real? Is this fake? And I think that I would love for Hollywood, who has been really, really complicit in the continuation of blackface, I would love Hollywood to say, okay, how do we encourage creations that teach this past in new creative ways. I I think that would be probably as powerful as curricular reform. Well, you are already associated with no less than the public theater. I think Hollywood should come calling. (laughs) From your lips. (laughs) (laughs) Ayanna Thompson, thank you for writing this book. And I I I hope we might keep in touch. Absolutely. I would love to have further conversations with you, Lois. It's really, really a pleasure. Professor Ayanna Thompson. Her new book is Blackface, part of the Object Lessons series from Bloomsbury Publishing. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The recent Academy Awards ceremony reminded me of a conversation I had last December with the Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter. Her exhibition, 
Afrofuturism is on view now at the Scatfash Museum. Ruth Carter spoke about the importance of teamwork when creating new pieces. Well, I always say I don't want to be on my own island when I'm designing costumes. It's a highly collaborative work, but sometimes I walk into a room and I have Black Panther pasted on my forehead or I have Oscar winner, you know, as I walk in and people go, you know, what do you think, Ruth? And I go, let's collectively talk about it. Let's be uh, together because my costume goes on a set. It's lit, lit by a DP. There are a lot of uh, factors to making this a successful costume. So that I'm not dictated to per se, because people think, you know, people want me to bring ideas to the table and, and have the freedom to be an artist. But, you know, we are collaborating. So I have to listen to what the director wants for the storytelling. Okay, so the director sets forth the parameters. Yes, he sets the tone that everybody collaborates on to accomplish it. Okay. What advice would you give young African-American costume designers in particular trying to forge their own path in this industry? I have a story I tell. Um, I met an editor who was uh, the one of the youngest editors to ever win an Oscar for one of his projects. And I met him and I said, you know, you know, very early in my career, like at the very beginning. And I said, you know, how, how does it feel? My God. And he said, just keep going and you'll get one too. Aww. So that's my advice. Just keep going. The Academy Award-winning costume designer, Ruth E. Carter. Her exhibition, Afrofuturism, is on view at the Scatfash Museum through September 12th. Mention the name Michelangelo and images of some of the most magnificent artworks ever created come to mind. His statue of David in the city of Florence and frescoes Michelangelo painted for the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Now you can experience some of the Sistine Chapel in Atlanta by way of an immersive, up-close exhibition on view at the Westside Cultural Arts Center. Dr. James Chapius is the owner and founder of the Arts Center. He's with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Please tell us about the Westside Cultural Arts Center, where it's located, and what arts experiences are available. Well, thank you. It's located in Westside Atlanta on 10th Street, 760 10th Street on the corner of Brady and 10th. It was opened in 2014. And it was open really as a way to, to give back to the community and bring arts more street level to the community. And also a focus of allowing a lot of emerging artists to be able to show their work. Now, over the years, we've evolved into sort of an interactive and engaging modern space 
we hosted Nike for the Super Bowl in 2019 and uh, were home to the studio of dreams that, that they put together. And so we've evolved and now very honored to have the Sistine Chapel exhibit. My goodness, I couldn't imagine one ever experiencing the Sistine Chapel without visiting Italy. This is quite an extraordinary opportunity. Tell us why, if you would, the West Side Cultural Arts Center is great for viewing this exhibition. Well, first of all, it was the brainchild of Martin Bayless, producer from Special Entertainment Events out of L.A., and apparently during his visit to the Sistine Chapel, he was rushed through, his neck hurt from trying to look up and see the images, and so he thought about a way to reproduce these life-size and then put together an exhibition. Well, we were fortunate enough, he looked at our venue and he started talking with us in mid-2019. He liked our space, he liked our location, and he liked Joe Barrera, our uh, director of operations. And so we developed a relationship and he chose us to show this. One of the reasons we have 20,000 square feet on the second floor, sort of an open kind of venue. So he felt like that would really work well and all of the 34 pieces that we have are life-size or on the ceilings or on the walls. So I think he felt the location and the venue would suit well for his exhibition. How did the tour come to your attention? Actually, he contacted Joe, our director of operations, heard, I guess, was online, saw our venue, liked it, and uh, wanted to come and visit. When he visited and met Joe and myself, I guess he liked our venue, and I guess he liked us. <laughs> he decided he wanted to work with us. In Vatican City, you mentioned how people are rushed through and, and crowded. This is pre-pandemic, of course. Crowded into a space for a short time, and much of the time visitors are looking up at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. How does having the art at the West Side Cultural Arts Center, having these reproductions at eye level give a different perspective? Well, that's a good question. I've never been to the Sistine Chapel yet. So as a first time viewer, uh, when I went through the exhibition, I, I was so excited because there, the reproductions are just amazing. They are at eye level. And then each of the 34 pieces has multilingual wall text and audio guides. So not only are you seeing these up close and impersonal, but you get a history lesson along the way, which I found very exciting. The other thing that's nice is uh, people are able to take pictures. And so a number of uh, the visitors are taking pictures of themselves and taking pictures of the art. So I think that adds another interesting dimension. I mean, the vivid reproductions are just amazing. When you speak about reproductions, we're talking photographs? Yes, they're, they're photographs. And then they've been reproduced and placed onto canvas. But it started with the photographs, and then they were the computer we was used to 
update all the fine details. So when you say life-size, can you describe the creation of Adam, the famous God reaching his hand and Adam touching? It's, it's huge. It's 14 by 12 feet. Again, uh, actual reproduction. Seeing it up front in personal, right, right before your eyes is, is, was breathtaking for me. And the final judgment is the only one that's about quarter size because the original, I believe, was 40 foot by 41 foot. So as soon as you walk into the exhibition to your left is the final judgment. And even at a quarter size reproduction, which that's the only one that was, re was reduced in size, it's just amazing to see the detail. You are a medical doctor. Yes. Please tell us about the safety precautions the center is taking so patrons can safely view this art. That's an excellent question. Yes, being a practicing physician and surgeon, we're extremely interested to make sure that's done. So masks are required. As I mentioned earlier, this is in 20,000 square feet. So we were practicing social distancing. We're heavily sanitizing all major touch points and surfaces. And I think when you see the size of the space in the venue, it really lends itself well to social distancing. So I think that we've, so far, we've really been able to follow all these guidelines, of course, also the ones put in place by the city of Atlanta, which is pretty much what we're talking about here. So that's, that's what we've been doing. The Art Center supports a rotating collection of art and performances. What are some events you have lined up for the near future? Well, we'd first like to mention Terminus Modern Ballet. Yes. We are the home of their studio and school, and we're so proud to have them. They've been with us since the inception of their group. They put on a number of events at our venue, along with Serenby and also at Kennesaw State. So just to have them present is just so exciting. John Welker is just such an incredible person, and just it just brings so much uh, creative life to our space. We have a very exciting venue that we've just about finalized. Uh, we can't really mention the name of it yet, but it'll be the first showing in North America of this exhibit, which will open Labor Day weekend. But it's going to be an extremely exciting uh, event and um, venue. And again, first showing in North America. Again, thanks to our new friend now, Martin Bayless. He's brought that to us. Stepping back a moment, how does this Sistine Chapel exhibition fit into your vision for Westside Cultural Arts Center? When I envisioned the building and what I wanted to do, I don't know that I had a particular plan, but I wanted to make sure that we were able to take the arts to the community, to bring arts of various different sorts to Atlanta. And so I, to me, to have this, and now we're reaching out to various inner city schools to bring children to see this. We're, we're reaching out to retirement homes and bringing, you know, retirees in. It's just amazing. It gives me goosebumps because this is exactly what I hoped we could accomplish for the community with Westside Cultural Arts Center. 
When did you realize the importance of cultural development for Atlanta's West Side? Well, you know, I was always a fan of the arts and I spent a lot of time at the High Museum and I always liked uh, what was shown. But what I felt Atlanta maybe could have used more of would be a space that didn't have corporate boards that would give the artists a little bit more of a a free voice as to what they could show and uh, what we could exhibit. And I felt like Westside with what was happening there would be the perfect uh, venue for this. And of course the building itself is an old building that we renovated. So it still has a very interesting sense of place. And sometimes in Atlanta, I I think we lose the sense of place. We tear down old buildings and build new ones. And in this case, I didn't want that to be the case. I wanted us to have an older building that had a history of Westside, but then was updated to a new modern space that could now express different views of the arts. And uh, I, I feel like we're accomplishing that. And I think with the Sistine Chapel exhibit, It's turning us in Atlanta into a world-renowned venue that's only going to continue to improve. Dr. James Chapius is the owner and founder of the Westside Cultural Arts Center, where the exhibition Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel will be on view through May 23rd. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And today, thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'm close to reaching another round number of followers. So I'd love it if you'd join me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.